Jesus limits showcasing piles of bread. It's almost imperceptible. He doesn't snap his fingers and then suddenly bread appears in piles for people to just go and grab. It's more intimate than that. He kept breaking bread. He kept handing it out. And often the work of God in the world is like that. It's a slow process that requires faith and patience. The Bible says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Do you trust that God's gospel will penetrate your heart, your family, your marriage, your children, your church, your world? Or do you only think that God's working when you can readily see piles of provision? This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Let's take our Bibles this morning and be turning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This morning we want to look at verses 1 through 10. The title of the message is The 4,000 Fed. You're familiar with this account and I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word and after we read it we will ask the Lord for his help as we look together at this text. Now hear God's word. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had Nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowds to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is God's word. Please be seated as we ask his blessing. Our Father, we come before you grateful for your word. Even just the reading of your word blesses our souls. But we come also to sit under the instruction of your word. And though I'm a weak man, I trust, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling your people, working together with the power of your word to bring to bear upon our souls the significance of this wonderful story of Jesus feeding 4,000 plus people. So bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Earlier in Mark's gospel, all the way back in chapter 6 in verses 35 through 44, we witnessed uh, Jesus' remarkable Miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish for a crowd of 5,000 people plus women and children. That event took place in the Jewish province of Galilee. We've seen since then that Jesus performed many miracles. He had multiple run-ins with the religious leaders of Israel. And sensing the mounting opposition against him, we began to see a couple of weeks ago that Jesus entered what theologians refer to as his retirement ministry. He wasn't retiring from the ministry, but he was retiring to a non-Jewish territory, namely a Gentile territory, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, as Mark tells us in Mark chapter 7, in the region of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. The, The Decapolis was a confederation of ten cities, very paganistic. There Jesus met A Syrophoenician woman, we looked at that, we saw her faith, Uh, her faith uh, moved Jesus to exercise the demons from her daughter that Jesus did from a distance, he never even met her daughter. And in that account we were 
really eager to show the point that Jesus allowed this woman to enter his household to enjoy the crumbs of bread falling from the Jewish table. That was really the point. That even this Gentile dog and other Gentile dogs are incorporated into the people of God and the covenants of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that's Mark's point because we move on from that scene as we saw last week to Jesus' healing of the deaf and the mute man who also was a Gentile, who also had faith. And Mark clearly is alluding to Isaiah 35, which prophesies the fact that the mute will speak. That when the messianic kingdom breaks into human history, the mute will speak. God will cause the mute to speak. And here in Mark chapter 7, this mute man did speak. This Gentile man, like the Gentile woman, you can see the categories that Mark is trying to help us to see it matters not if you're a man or if you're a woman or if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you have faith in Christ, you have citizenship in the kingdom of God. But there's more because together with um, that crazy demoniac earlier in Mark chapter 5 who spread news about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him uh, throughout all the Decapolis, together with the testimony of the Syrophoenician woman, the deaf and mute man and his friends, we saw that a massive Gentile crowd began to follow Jesus. They followed him everywhere he went. Matthew tells us, that they marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Yes, this Gentile mob glorified the God of Israel. Jesus, as he traveled in a rather circular pattern, some 120 miles in this Gentile territory, the reason for which he wanted to get alone with the disciples to prepare them for their mission once he was gone, which was to go into all the world and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In the process of that, Jesus interacted with a multitude of Gentiles who had faith. This, no doubt, was a shock to the apostles. I can't stress that enough. These apostles would have no doubt possessed bigoted feelings toward non-Jewish people. You remember in one account, they tried to call down fire from heaven to consume a Samaritan village. They had no love, the disciples, no compassion, no mercy on non-Jews. But here, this throng of people is glorifying the God of Israel. It's important to stress that Mark writes with a theological purpose. And recognizing this, let me just say, helps us not fall into the hands of liberal scholars who claim that there are not two feeding events in the Bible, but only one feeding event. These scholars assume that Mark was either not aware that there was only one feeding, or purposely recorded another feeding so as to confuse us because he wanted to take literary liberty to press home a theological point. This, of course, is all nonsense. If you remember, Mark's um, primary source is Peter. Peter was an eyewitness to all these events, and don't you think that Peter, upon seeing Mark write of two accounts, would have corrected him if there was only one account? There are clearly two accounts, the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee and now the feeding of the 4,000 here in this Gentile territory. Moreover, Are we to think that liberal scholars know better than Jesus himself? Because notice with me in verse 19, Jesus told the disciples, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. Verse 20, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. So it's clear there are two feedings. But the question now becomes, now that we've gotten rid of liberal scholarship, Why were there two feedings? And why were these feedings so similar as to be confused as the same event? Why did God allow them to happen in stunningly similar ways? Why did the disciples act the same? Why did Jesus largely act the same? Well, on the surface, there are very, very many similarities, but there are also differences. For example, In the first feeding, there were five loaves and two fish. In the second feeding, there are seven loaves with only a few small fish. 
Secondly, the first feeding was 5,000 plus, the second feeding 4,000 plus. Third, in the first feeding, the crowd was with Jesus but one day. In the second feeding, Mark tells us they were with him for three days. Number four, in the first feeding, it obviously was springtime because the people sat down on lush green grass. In the second feeding, they just sat down on the dry ground, indicating that springtime had faded away. And fifth, the first feeding had 12 leftover baskets, as we just saw Jesus say. And in the second feeding, there were seven. Now, there are more differences, and that's going to be our object this morning, is to see these differences as we work through the passage. But the primary difference doesn't lie so much in the numbers, although we'll talk about that, but rather in the location and the audience. The first audience, the first crowd was largely Jewish in Galilee. The second crowd was Gentile. And Mark records both because he wants us to see that Jesus does not merely have compassion on Jews, but he also has compassion on Gentiles. After the first feeding, Jesus declared, as we know from John chapter 6, that he was the bread of life. Prior to the second feeding, Jesus interacts with the Syrophoenician woman here in Mark chapter 7. He allows her to eat the bread crumbs from the table. So the story of the feeding of the 4,000 is teasing out Mark's theological point, namely that Gentile dogs share in the salvation that Jesus, the bread of life, offers to the world. Now Mark doesn't bring this theology out as explicitly as John does. John really brings it out over in John chapter 6. He gives the bread of life discourse, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone, not just Jews, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Mark is clearly drawing out those theological ideas, although he is not doing it as explicitly as John. But there's even more here. When we dig a little bit deeper, we see that Mark even outlines his book in a way that would cause us to see the similarities between these two different feedings. The stories following the feeding of the 5,000 back in uh, Mark chapter 6 has Jesus crossing a lake in verses 45 through 56. Then in chapter 7 verses 1 through 23, he has a dispute with the Pharisees. Then in chapter 7 verses 24 through 30, he has a deep discussion about bread. Then in chapter 7 verses 31 through 36, he heals people. And then at the end in verse 37 of Mark chapter 7, there's this startling confession of faith. The people say he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. A confession of faith regarding his power. Well, there is a clear pattern to the way that Mark now begins to outline chapter 8. Jesus feeds the 4,000 here in Mark 8, verses 1 through 9. This is followed by him crossing a lake, chapter 8, verse 10. Then he has a dispute with the Pharisees, verses 11 through 13. Then he has another deeper discussion about bread, verses 14 through 21. Then he heals more people, verses 22 through 26. And then finally, another paramount confession of faith. You're familiar with it from Peter in verses 27 through 30, where Peter says in verse 29, you are the Christ. This is no accident. Mark is writing with theological purpose, even ordering his material in similar ways to get us to see that anyone who makes a confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ can receive salvation bread from heaven. It matters not if you're Jew or Gentile. It matters not. God has come to save the world. And it's important to note that the gospel writers all write with a little different purpose. 
They are not giving full itineraries of Jesus' ministry. They are not recording by any stretch of the imagination everything that Jesus did. That would obviously be impossible to do. John even admits this. Many signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. They're giving us summaries. They're giving us glimpses of truth, pressing home theological points points to help us understand the essence of the gospel and the identity of Jesus. And all the gospel writers in their own way want people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing they may have life in his name because there is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in no other name. So you can trust your Bibles and you must trust the Jesus of the Bible that there is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. Mark wants us to see that. Now we saw him alluding to Isaiah 35 last week that the mute would speak when the messianic kingdom broke in. But here in this feeding of the 4,000, I think that he is recording this because he wants us to think back to Isaiah chapter 55. I read it for our public reading of scripture Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. A prophecy about the compassion of God providing bread that will satisfy hungry souls. You say, well, how are you making that connection of Isaiah 55 with the feeding of the 4,000? Well, for this very reason, Mary herself made the connection with Isaiah 55 and Jesus is the bread of life in her song of praise. Hearing that Jesus was the promised Messiah in her womb, in Luke 1.53, Mary said to God that he had filled the hungry with good things. She understood that the coming of the Messiah meant the hungry would be fed. The spiritually hungry would be given salvation. So this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 is simply showing us that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's long-awaited prophecy that only the bread from heaven, namely Jesus, can satisfy hungry sinful lost souls and that you must come to Christ he is the only one that can satisfy your longing for salvation as we look at this passage and compare it with the earlier incident of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the Jewish territory of Galilee we see that um, Jesus is feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles here in Mark 8 1 through 10 have with it three significant observations I think Mark is writing with theological purpose. He wants us to tease out the applications and implications of why he is giving a a recording of another feeding of Jesus to the multitudes. That if we draw these applications out, we will have help for living out our own Christian life. What it means for Jesus to be our bread of life and also understanding what God is largely doing in the world today. So let's look at these three significant observations. The first significant observation we see is found in verses 1 through 3. When we compare it with his earlier feeding of the 5,000, we see, number one, a similar yet different situation. Notice verse 1. It says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him. In those days, that refers to his time in the Gentile region of the Decapolis. We know that because of Chapter 7 and verse 31, that's where Jesus was. He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. This is a thoroughly Gentile and pagan territory located on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark uses that word again in verse 1 to indicate his understanding that this is the same type of feeding, just in a different location. He's recalling to mind the feeding from chapter 6, but, he, but it is to say now this is in a different location, namely a Gentile territory. And this particular great crowd who had gathered, we'll see in verse 2, had been with him for three days. So when it says there in verse 1 that they had nothing to eat, this suggests a remarkable interest in Jesus. 
When Jesus fed the Jews, 5,000 plus, they had only been with him one day and they were hungry. And then they wanted breakfast the next morning. These Gentiles are so riveted by Jesus, they are pulled like a, a magnet toward Jesus, so riveted by his teaching and by his miracles that they don't even know they're hungry until day three. They are absorbed in Jesus. They didn't want to leave him. But Jesus knew their needs, so the end of verse one says, he called the disciples to him. Now that is interesting because in the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who brought to Jesus' attention regarding the food crisis. But that was a Jewish crowd. Perhaps this explains why the disciples aren't approaching Jesus, why he is now calling the disciples to himself, because the disciples don't have the same compassion for this Gentile crowd as they had for the Jewish crowd. But Jesus did. He had compassion, even when the crowd apparently didn't realize how severe the situation was and perhaps how hungry they were so absorbed in his teaching maybe the men were not even thinking about the women and the children and the older people who were weaker and couldn't be sustained on little food but what this crowd could not physically feel in their absorption with Jesus and their stomachs and the disciples refused to feel, having no compassion. Jesus deeply felt their pain and understood the potential of this crisis. Once around him, notice your Bibles, verse 2 tells us Jesus addressed the disciples. Here's why I've called you together. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. In the feeding of the 5,000, we saw Jesus demonstrate compassion toward the crowd. But here, Mark is highlighting not just what we see from Jesus, but what we hear from his own mouth. First person testimony from his own lips. Jesus says, I have compassion. Splachnizomai is the Greek word. You're familiar with it. It means to be moved in one's bowels. It, it conveys deep sympathy. It comes from splachnon, referring to the entrails or vital organs of the human body, used metaphorically to speak about the seat of one's emotions. We already saw back in Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, Jesus saw a great crowd and had splachnizomai, compassion on them, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. He shared the very heart of God because Jesus is God. He had known what it was like to experience the hunger pains when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And here is the great high priest, the one who sympathizes with those who are weak. It's as if he says, my heart goes out to this hungry crowd. I feel in the depth of my heart of hearts the same pain they feel in their stomach. This is the compassionate Savior we're familiar with. By the way, over and over and over again, this is the language that is used to describe God in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, merciful and compassionate God. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And even compassionate language describing God as covenantal language. 2 Kings 13.23, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them. He turned toward them because of the covenant he had made with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He would not destroy them nor cast them from his presence. That was compassion that Yahweh, the covenant God, made to his people. And here, Jesus, the Son of God, is having covenant compassion toward Gentiles, those outside of the covenant. And perhaps it's easy for us to overlook this gut-wrenching compassion was not for the Jewish nation. He wept over Jerusalem, yes, but this compassion is over Gentiles. By the way, full of offensive lepers, and demon-possessed people that he was constantly healing. He obviously cared for their spiritual needs. They were like sheep without a shepherd too. But the focus here is the physical needs. Notice he says in verse 2, they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. His magnetic pull kept them three days with nothing to eat. Surely during that time they were being fed. 
but they were being fed spiritually. And they couldn't be fed enough his spiritual preaching meals. They knew quite well and understood quite well, better than many Jews, that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They are fasting out of an absorption in the teaching of the word of God and then witnessing all the miracles Jesus was performing. That's why Mark says they were glorifying the God of Israel. While the Jewish crowd of the 5,000 perhaps was largely unbelieving, I would make the contention that the crowd of the 4,000 Gentiles was largely believing. Jesus is having compassion on them. And verse 3 states that this was no minor issue. This is a potential catastrophe, just like the feeding of the 5,000 when there was no food. Notice verse 3. Jesus goes on to say, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Jesus says they will faint. The, The word in the Greek literally means they will collapse. The rugged terrain of the Decapolis would make the journey home hard on an empty stomach especially because there were sparse towns to buy food in, particularly because there were women and children that couldn't survive on an empty stomach without fainting. And Jesus says, many of them have come, notice verse 3, from far away. From far away. That is interesting because in the Greek Septuagint, there is this sort of language that is used, for example, in Isaiah chapter 43 in Isaiah 60 to describe God bringing back the Jews from their exiled Gentile lands. Let me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 43, 6, I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, give them up. Do not withhold. Bring my sons, here's the language, from afar, same Greek Greek word, and my daughters from the end of the earth. And verse 5 before that says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Or Isaiah 60, verse 4, Lift up your eyes all around and see. All of them who gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come, here it is, from afar. And your daughters shall be carried on the hip and return to me. This is language of Gentile lands from afar, bringing back Jewish exiles. But it seems to me that both Jesus and the apostles use this bringing back of Jews from their exiled Gentile lands as illustrative of the engrafting of Gentiles into the covenants of God because of the compassion of God. You remember back in Matthew Chapter 8, we have, we have referenced this uh, several times that when Jesus um, saw that he had not seen such great faith in all of Israel after the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, the faith of that man, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. East and the west... The north and the south, that's language of Isaiah 60, Isaiah 43, which teaches me that Jesus understood the bringing back of Jews from their exiled Gentile lands, which he would do, was illustrative of him drawing Gentiles into his covenant. Paul even apparently understood that because Paul would write with crystal clarity in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Speaking about Israel's time in the wilderness, he says to the church, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Everything in the Old Testament was illustrative. It was an example of what God is doing in the world through his covenants and bringing his people to himself. Jesus addresses the disciples here. This is important to see. In verses 1 through 3, not because he's looking for a solution. He's bringing the disciples together not because he's looking for a solution. Back in the feeding of the 5,000, we read in John chapter 6, he asked the disciples what they were going to do about the, the, the catastrophe, not because he didn't know, but because he knew he was testing them. Here in Mark 8, he's bringing the disciples together 
I think, to awaken them to the fact that they should have had compassion on this crowd. They came to him when the Jewish crowd was hungry. They looked for all sorts of solutions. Here they're not willing. Teaches us an important lesson on compassion. When we don't feel compassion for the needs of others, at a minimum, we're not acting like Christ, and at a maximum, we don't even know Christ. A harsh, inconsiderate, unloving spirit, that matches the the character of the Pharisees, but it should never match the character of a follower of Christ. We should be most concerned about the spiritual needs of those around us, but notice here that this does not preclude us from having compassion toward physical needs or even emotional needs, just as Jesus did. We can often forget that out of our love for truth, out of our love for doctrine, out of our love to want to do what is right. We harshly and insensitively don't show mercy and compassion to others. The disciples struggled with that. Jesus is teaching them a lesson. And as we'll see, the disciples are not willing to find solutions for this Gentile audience because in comparing this account with the earlier account of the feeding of the 5,000, we observe not only a similar yet different situation, verses 1 through 3, but secondly, a similar yet different solution. There are similarities to the solution, but also differences. Notice verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, let me just say what I said in my introduction. This verse 4 is really where the liberal scholars hang on to assert that there was only one feeding because they say if Jesus had done an earlier feeding, then why would they ask this question? They had already seen what he would do. They knew what he would do. Well, they hadn't forgotten. I can assure you of that. This question in verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place, was not a question rooted in forgetfulness, and I also don't think it was a question rooted in a lack of faith. They saw what Jesus did, and that strengthened their faith earlier. No, this, I think, was a question out of hesitation to help. Sort of like saying, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know. An unwillingness to give, listen to this, of their own resources. That's what this is about. This is a money issue. This is stinginess. Do you remember in the earlier feeding, the disciples calculated that they could feed that Jewish crowd of 5,000 plus on eight months wages, maybe, 200 denarii. You remember that uh, though at first they suggested sending the crowds away to buy their own food, Remember, Jesus said, no, you find them something to eat. And so the disciples relented, and they asked Jesus if uh, he wanted them to go buy food for them in the surrounding towns, and then they sort of concluded that 200 denarii probably wasn't enough. But the point to see is that in this situation, such a solution is not only impossible because it says they are in a desolate place, verse 4. There weren't the same towns and villages around in this territory. But even more to the point, the main difference is the disciples don't seem that interested in looking for a solution. In the first account, at least they found some little lad with a lunch and said, this is all we have. In this account, they offer no solutions. I mean, Jesus has to go to them and ask them, How much bread do you have? Almost as if he's prying it from their stingy hands. No compassion. Now, this could have been because they had a degree of faith. They asked this question. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Sort of a tongue-in-cheek kind of implication well Jesus you did this before but I I don't think that's at all what's happening I don't think they care about this particular crowd because it's full of Gentiles they didn't share the same compassion of our Lord I am convinced that when they looked out across this crowd they saw people that were not part of the Abrahamic covenant they were unclean dogs not even worthy to receive crumbs from the table 
according to rabbinic regulations, Jews were prohibited from eating with Gentiles. So this is not just a lack of compassion. This is sort of a super superiority sort of thing that I'm too spiritual to eat with unclean people. Jesus will force them not only to participate in the feeding of this crowd, but to eat with them. Jesus is teaching the disciples a lesson. And Mark is teaching his Gentile readers a lesson and us a lesson. And that is that Jesus is the bread of life that has been given to all the nations of the world. Remember, Mark is writing to Roman Christians who are not of Jewish ethnicity. And they are beginning to hear they have to be circumcised to enter the kingdom of God. They are beginning to hear they must follow dietary laws to be saved. Mark is saying, no, simple faith. We know the disciples had hard hearts. Skip with me um, to verse 17. They're in the boat with the disciples and they're complaining about the fact they have no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves? And the seven, you're complaining about your needs not being met. Don't you understand your greatest needs have been met? They're hard-hearted. Perhaps they were so short-sighted they didn't even know if Jesus was enough for them, much less for Gentiles. And Mark's use in verse 4 there of desolate place and bread I think is intended to trigger thoughts of the manna that God provided for the Jews in the wilderness. Remember in the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6, which followed on the heels of him feeding the 5,000 plus Jewish crowd, Jesus stated that he was the fulfillment of manna coming down from heaven and that one had to eat him in order to enjoy salvation. Back in that passage, just flip over there with me for a moment in John 6, it was abundantly clear, verse 35, for example, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Back in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, you don't understand. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Eating Jesus was synonymous with believing in the identity of Jesus. He's reenacting God providing bread in the wilderness with the Jews and the feeding of the 5,000. But here in the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, Jesus' point is that even these Gentiles will receive the manna from heaven in this wilderness of the Decapolis, this desolate place. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, The feeding of the multitude foreshadows the gathering together of those from every nation under heaven to the heavenly feeding of God's people. And I think that's the theological point. But notice how Jesus begins to take control. Verse 5, he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. Now let me be clear this morning. We must be very careful with so-called numerology. That is, not assigning symbolic significance to numbers when they appear in Scripture. We aren't to do this flippantly. But let me just say this. Jesus doesn't ask this question in verse 5 because he doesn't know how many loaves there are, right? He does it to draw attention to the number 7. 
So I think it's safe to see symbolic significance to a number if Jesus appears to draw attention to it and attach significance to it. Here, clearly, he's drawing attention to it because he wants the disciples to confess with their lips how many loaves they have. How many do you have? They said seven. Otherwise, he would have just said, give me the bread. He's drawing attention to the seven loaves. He doesn't want the disciples, or for us, us for that matter, to forget this number. And if you struggle with accepting any sort of numerology, let me set your mind at ease. Skip to verse 19. What does Jesus do? He draws attention to the numbers. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? He's forcing them to say 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? He's forcing them to say seven. And then he says, do you not yet understand? In other words, these numbers matter. What do they mean? Well, we saw that with the leftover 12 baskets and the feeding of the 12 that that clearly, and this is sort of accepted with all commentators, pointed to the fact that not only was that sort of a sack lunch for the 12 apostles, which they would share with Jesus, but it also pointed to them as the foundation of the new covenant church, the newly reconstituted Israel, the 12 apostles following the 12 tribes of Israel who would go into all the world and preach the gospel. If that's true, which I think it is, then perhaps seven, the number seven leftover baskets that we're going to see and the seven loaves highlight something significant. How many loaves do you have? They said seven. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. Perhaps to point to the completion of God's salvation. It doesn't just end with Jews. It goes to the Gentiles. Salvation is not according to one's ethnicity or religious pedigree. It's for humble sinners who come to Christ. Interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 7.1 speaks about Israel conquering in the promised land seven nations more numerous and mightier than them. Who were they? The Hittites, the Gergagashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. There, Israel was commanded to destroy them. Here, Jesus commands that they be fed. They be fed. So Mark repeats the number seven for emphasis in verse six. And he directed the crowd, notice your Bibles, to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd. Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the ground in order to show that he was in control of this event. He was the one with compassion. Then he took the seven loaves, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. So again, just as Jesus did in the first miracle in feeding the 5,000, Jesus blesses these flat bread cakes with a prayer to show that the power to perform this miracle comes from heaven. He prays. He blesses it, but he uses a different word. It's the word translated given thanks. In Mark 6.41, it's eulogine, but here it's eucharistine. You might be familiar with that word. It's where we get the word eucharist, Lord's Supper. Now, the primary teaching of the feeding of the multitudes is not about the Lord's Supper, but there is application. In fact, the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread. All of this language clues us in to the themes of table fellowship that Gentiles enjoy with Abraham's people. The Syrophoenician woman was given approval to enjoy table fellowship with Jesus and the apostles. He is the bread of life. He is the one who has come into the world to provide salvation for hungry sinners, regardless of who they are. 
God's grace is big. But also notice that Jesus wants the disciples involved in this illustration that shows him as the bread of life because it says he broke them and gave them to his disciples and it was to them he gave it so that they set it before the people. And then they set before the crowd. I love this. This is a picture of Jesus, one with his people, standing before the crowd with the provision of the bread of life to the world. These Jewish apostles, these Jewish apostles, the foundation of the church around Jesus, the cornerstone, is calling out to all of those who have faith to come and eat, to be part of this covenant, to be composed together with Abraham's children, Abraham's offspring. That is the picture that Mark wants us to see. It's beautiful, isn't it? That in the life of our Lord, every action, every action had significance. Sure, he felt compassion for the crowd, but Jesus is thinking a hundred steps beyond everyone else. He knows exactly what he's doing. The word of God is inspired. The witness of the gospels collectively are meant to teach us theological points. These are not running commentaries and random stories about the life of Jesus. They were written with a purpose to press home a point and this is the point Mark is pressing home. And the account continues in verse seven with the inclusion of fish. They had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Here there's only a few small fish. This amounted to uh, scraps of fish, kind of like sardines, I guess you could say. In the earlier account, there were two fish. This is just scraps few small fish. Jesus also blessed the fish. They were set before them. And here we see Jesus turning this measly meal into a great feast for the multitudes to receive as an illustration of Jesus as the bread of life. And once again, we see that he is the only solution. He may have went about this miracle a little bit differently, but he performs the same miracle. In fact, back up in verse 6, focusing on that phraseology, it says he broke them and gave them. Literally, it reads, he kept breaking and kept giving the bread. The fish is almost an afterthought. It's mentioned in verse 7 in passing. It's the continual breaking of bread, the continual giving of bread, imperceptibly. Perhaps under Jesus' hands while he broke edible pieces, he handed it to the disciples and it miraculously multiplied without anyone really even seeing what was exactly happening. Jesus is doing the work here of a second Moses. Moses simply announced manna coming down from heaven. Jesus is the manna. He is the manna. And you remember when that flaky white substance dropped down from heaven, For the Israelites in the Old Testament, they looked at it and they said, what is it? And that's what manna means. What is it? Jesus is saying, I am it. I am it. I am that manna. Your staple diet for 40 years, that's who I am. The Jews would have understood that, but they would have been shocked that Jesus was offering himself as manna in this Gentile wilderness to be a provision of salvation for lost sinners. This is absolutely amazing. Jesus tore down racial barriers, didn't he? Social justice movement does not tear down barriers. It puts barriers up. And any Christian who follows that movement will follow it right into hell because it perverts the gospel. It goes directly against what Jesus is teaching. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Jesus says, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's drawing these Gentiles to himself. The bread of life. Where was Jesus born? In the town of Bethlehem, literally meaning the house of bread. Here the bread of life from the city of bread, is breaking bread, creating something from virtually nothing, 
to reveal this simple point, God alone through Christ will provide for you your greatest longings, your deepest satisfaction. You say, well, I already knew that. Yeah, but that's the point. You need reminded and so do I. Disciples had to experience two whole feedings. The Lord's Supper, which symbolizes Jesus' broken body and poured out blood, is to be done often. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Why? Because we have weak faith like the apostles. We need reminded constantly of God's grace to us through Christ. And this takes us to the conclusion. We're comparing this feeding with the earlier feeding of the 5,000. We've seen, number one, a similar yet different situation, verses 1 through 3. Number two, a similar yet different solution, verses 4 through 7. That takes us, number three, to a similar yet different satisfaction, verses 8 through 10. Notice verse 8, and they ate, the Bible says, and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Once eating the bread, Mark is clear, they were completely satisfied. They've wandered in the wilderness following Jesus some 120 miles as he goes in kind of a circular fashion. And at the end of it, they were satisfied. There was plenty left over, verse 8 says, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. The feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over, representing the 12 apostles following on the heels of the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying the newly reconstituted Israel. The new Israel of God began with the 12. But notice it says there were seven baskets full. Now, there would be no use for Mark to mention the number seven again if it didn't have a point. Clearly has a point. But before we consider that notice that word baskets it's the greek word spurus which uh, by the way is a different word that's used in mark chapter 6 to describe the baskets that were used to take up the leftovers in the feeding of the 5,000 that word is kafanos spurus is a larger basket in fact it's almost like a hamper It was the same sort of basket that Paul himself was lowered in. In Acts chapter 9, a human body can fit into it. What is is Mark's point? What is the point of inspired scripture? What is the significance of the difference of these baskets? Well, this miracle was bigger in the sense that God's salvation was reaching the Gentiles. It had more leftovers. The remnant of Jews would be saved by God, but that would be a remnant, beginning with the 12 apostles. They could only fit in 12 little baskets. And then there's 120, we later see. But the provision God will make for the world, for the nations, seven huge baskets of God's grace. If Jesus highlights the symbolism of numbers, and the difference in baskets, then we have authority to do so as well. Again, in Mark chapter 8, verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? In in these verses, Jesus uses those two words for basket. He uses kafanos, referring to the baskets of the feeding of the 5,000, the small baskets, and spurus for the feeding of the 4,000, the big baskets. This is... uh, This is big salvation to the world. That's the point. In the earlier feeding, it was Jews. They waited one day before they were fed. That would make sense because it was to the Jews that were given the covenants of God, the oracles of God. They were convenient, had access to God. Gentiles had to wait far longer. Feeding of the 4,000, they wait three days before Jesus feeds them. All of this, I believe, is symbolic language. 
a literal event that has with it symbolic language. Turn back with me to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 3, just for a moment. The Lord said to Abram, verse 1, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice this, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The earth. This is not limited. Go to Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, notice this, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Seven nations. Seven baskets full. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, plural. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and all your offspring the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, an everlasting possession. I will be their God, generation after generation after generation after generation, not just Jews, also Gentiles. This is the point of the feeding of the 4,000. The ancient promises of the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he would usher in his kingdom full of Jews and Gentiles. He would graft them into the family tree of Abraham That was all being symbolized and illustrated in the feeding of these 4,000 Gentiles. What is Paul saying in Galatians 3, 7? You are a son of Abraham if you have what? The faith of Abraham. Has nothing to do with ethnicity. Nothing. Now Mark finally gives us the number. Notice verse 9. He says there were about 4,000 people. 4,000 people. This is actually a more than 4,000 people because Matthew 15:38 says that there were also women and children present. So this crowd of 4,000 plus was nearly as large as the 5,000 plus. Here's what you need to imagine. 4,000 men. What does that mean? Listen, 4,000 households. 4,000 households of people totaling perhaps 20, 30,000 people so that all the families of the earth would be blessed by Jesus, the very seed of Abraham, just as the Bible predicted? 4,000 households. 4,000 plus blessings from the hand of Jesus. And it says there that he sent them away. That's kind of interesting. Well, number one, they wouldn't go away. Jesus had things to do. The word literally could be translated dismiss, but it could also be translated release. I don't know which is the better way to take it. They were dismissed so Jesus could move on, but they were also released from their hunger. They were liberated. They were released from their paganism, many of them, because they believed. And like the demoniac and the deaf and mute man and his friends who spread the word about Jesus, no doubt they went and told others of their liberation. But the account closes in verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sent the disciples alone in the boat. They got caught in that storm. Here he gets in the boat with them. Where was Dalmanutha? We don't really know. Some evidence says it was a plain, or it was south of the plain of Gennesaret. We don't know for sure. 
We don't always know where Jesus will take us, but wherever we go, we are to share the good news of the kingdom, trusting that he will draw his elect to himself. He will draw in his elect from the nations, from the families of the earth. There's an emphasis here on the optimism of the growth of the kingdom of God, and there's an emphasis on the way God does that through households, through families, through families. It is no accident that God works through families generationally because God's word promised this would be how it was. The best way for a church to grow is to have a few families that have a lot of kids and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a healthy church. Now let me just give you in closing, quickly, three little points of application to sort of tie all of this together. These will be quick, so listen carefully. Number one, what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us, number one, that God's salvation is not beyond the reach of any heart that's softened by the Spirit, a heart that's hungry to be satisfied with the bread of the gospel. If that's you this morning, go to Jesus. There's enough grace for you. God's covenant is big. It includes Jews and Gentiles. It includes parents and children male and female, slave and free. We aren't to place limits on what God can do and what God has promised to do through the gospel in the world. We're to take him at his word. What does he say in Isaiah 55? The rain waters the earth. God's word doesn't return void. Secondly, Jesus operates according to the spiritual principle of supply and demand. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Here in this passage, Jesus limits showcasing piles of bread. Did you notice that? It's almost imperceptible. He doesn't snap his fingers and then suddenly bread appears in piles for people to just go and grab. It's more intimate than that. He kept breaking bread. He kept handing it out. And often the work of God in the world is like that. It's a slow process that requires faith and patience. The Bible says that Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Do you trust that God's gospel will penetrate your heart, your family, your marriage, your children, your church, your world? Or do you only think that God's working when you can readily see piles of provision? Do you have faith? Do you have faith in the ordinary means of grace? Preaching of the word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. He wants us to depend upon him in prayer. He wants to feed us his bread. But the supply of bread will be there when his people demand by faith that he feeds them. That's exactly what is happening here. We run to Christ in faith. Regardless of what we see or don't see, we take God at his word and we trust him to work. Number three. There were leftovers of bread, right? Seven baskets full, symbolizing that there is the perfect amount of gospel bread for our little worlds and the world at large. Jesus will always give us the strength we need to accomplish his purpose. There's always leftover grace. And so I want to encourage you that whatever God has given to you, there's still more for him to give you. Our resources may be small and few in number, but Jesus is not ever limited in power. What does it mean to be satisfied with Jesus? It means we're content with the meal he provides. That's what it means. Are you content with the gospel? Are you content with the simplicity of the preaching of the word of God, the observance of the sacraments, prayer, faith, reading the Bible, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and trusting that God will bless that? Did you notice here that the crowd did not complain about the food they received? I mean, hungry people don't have the privilege of asking for a menu. Beggars can't be choosers. They took what God gave them. They praised him for it. They trusted him to work. They didn't look for the spectacular, really. They just trusted Jesus. And he blessed them. I want to say this. People come to our church 
often. And they say, well, you know, we love the theology, we, we love the preaching, we love the people, but you don't have this and you don't have this and you don't have this and you don't have that. You know what I'm going to start saying? Here's what I'm going to start saying. We are a small church plant that has required a huge amount of work that only God's grace has sustained. If God has brought us this far with faith, how much further could God bring us if everyone had more faith? Do your part. Be committed. Be grateful. Have faith. Jesus supplies the bread. Where's the faith? He's the supplier. We, we're, just, we're just passing out the bread of the gospel. We're just trusting in him. You see, we must boldly ask for his gospel to penetrate the world and we must believe that he will use us to do that in the process. Listen, that does not come by the spectacular. You know how that comes? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Being committed studying his word, being the best parent you can be, being the best husband you can be, being the best father, mother, being the best employee, being the best boss, being the best citizen, faithfulness. We're not looking for piles of bread. We're not demanding God to allow us to see all that he's doing. We're just coming to him as beggars and we're saying, I don't deserve this, but please give me what you have, God. Give me what you have because your gospel will be enough. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's gospel advances in the world through small, faithful churches that are made up of people that nobody else knows about. That's the growth of the kingdom of God. That is the growth of the kingdom of God. God did not choose the wise of the world. He chose the foolish so that he could be glorified, so that he could be magnified. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful account, Lord, of the feeding of the 4,000, pressing home to our hearts. First of all, just your compassion, your grace, your love. Also reminding us of how we are to participate, Lord, in this disseminating of the gospel bread. You include us. You want us to trust you as we proclaim your truth. You want us to trust you at every turn. Lord, that you will be faithful to your promises. You are the bread promised. You are the manna from heaven, dear Jesus, that has come to satisfy us. Lord, through your death and resurrection, Lord, we can experience by faith the great provision, our greatest need being met, sins forgiven, the hope of eternal life. Lord, we pray if there are any here this morning, Lord, that are hungry, that they would go to Christ, run to Christ, allow him to feed them. Lord, that they may be satisfied and blessed eternally. Thank you for this church. and Lord, we trust in the power of your spirit to take your word and bless the hearts of those that have received it. For your glory and for your kingdom, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.